0: Welcome to a special episode of The DB Show, a show about all things tech, digital, influencing and changing how we do business. we're back in lockdown due to COVID, but it's not gonna stop us from punching out some great episodes and some great content for you all. So our very own Paul Scott um, is interviewing a very close friend of Digital Village, Corey Hancock, better known as the environmental cowboy. So Paul and Corey are gonna be going through some really interesting topics today, touching on carbon offsetting, sustainability, and trying to debunk the myths that surround a lot of these ideas. Corey's also gonna to touch on a new film documentary that he is filming at the moment called A Blue Hope, which looks at the sustainability issues that the current agricultural industry is facing, now the technologies and the oceans can help to rectify these problems. And lastly, they'll touch on how we as individuals can be more proactive and make a difference together in this fight against the climate crisis. So enjoy today's episode.
1: So, Corey, good afternoon. Lovely to see you again. It's uh, a couple of months since you and I had a, a chat at the um, DV show, um, and you were talking about regenerative agriculture and uh, the role that, uh, that that has in helping you save the planet. And, of course, Digital Village is really interested, and our audience are really interested, to understand how technology could be playing a role to help execute some of these wonderful ideas in the regenerative agriculture space. Now, I know that you've just recently started a new job and you've also kicked off a new project. Um, And we'd really love to hear about that. But before we do, one of the um, things I saw in the Times newspaper in London uh, a few days ago was that um, the Amazon rainforests are now actually pumping out more carbon than they're capturing, and you know when I grew up, um, that we were always taught at school that the the lungs of the Earth were the Amazon rainforest because that's where carbon dioxide was captured and oxygen was released into the atmosphere. And to 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 hear that and read that, I just thought, wow. And then of course um, you and I talked about the role that uh, seaweed could be playing in this whole carbon capture thing and guess what you're doing a, a, a project in that area which looks absolutely fascinating called blue hope um so welcome nice to see you again can you perhaps um give us a bit of background on that well
2: yeah thanks for uh having me on the show again paul It was great to chat last time and, and uh, hopefully we can get into a bit more detail now but i guess yes. for your audience um Just want to give a bit of background on myself. I'm I'm now over a decade uh, environmental scientist professional in working in the industry uh, across a number of different resource industries. But I've settled now, as you said, I've taken a new job in carbon farming, which is carbon sequestration. It's uh, basically mining carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, causing climate change and uh, storing it or working out ways that we can store it through different scientific methodologies in our oceans, our forests and our soils. Um, like you mentioned, the Amazon rainforest is the lungs of the planet. It sequesters. It, it mines carbon out of the atmosphere and stores it in its forest. Well, it's not causing uh, harmful climate change, uh, greenhouse gases, etc. So there's different scientific methodologies that allow us to sort of speed up these, these uh, natural processes. One of those ways is seaweed. Um, seaweed as a, as a plant grows 36 to 60 times faster than any land-based plant. So in terms of carbon, yeah, in in terms of carbon dioxide uh, sequestration potential and that sequestration meaning um, absorbing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. uh, And if you think of carbon as the building block of life, right, like all life on Earth needs carbon um, and for nature to regenerate, it is in nature's biology to regenerate, meaning grow. When a tree grows, it stores more carbon. Um, drawing that carbon dioxide down through the photosynthesis process. So seaweed can do that at such a rapid pace that it can draw that carbon dioxide down really, really quickly and store it in that that seaweed. Now, I'm doing a project on this, like you mentioned, um, a film, documentary film called A Blue Hope. Uh, basically, it's looking for hope in the blue seaweed, being one of those uh, one of those main solutions. But the multiple co-benefits that comes off seaweed farming itself is absolutely insane. So, for example, uh, CSIRO, Australia's leading scientific agency, has started to develop or has developed this uh, cattle feed supplement called Future Feed. Now, this f- uh, cattle feed, if you Put two percent of Asparagopsis. It's a diff, It's a type of seaweed, a pink seaweed. If you put two percent of that into this into this the overall feed um, ingredients, then it uh, and fe- feed it to cattle. It reduces those methane emissions in cattle up to ninety nine percent. So basically, oh. feeding seaweed to cattle completely eliminates methane emissions, which is a huge solution to agriculture, right? And, and methane being a twenty five to thirty times more potent greenhouse warming potential gas than carbon dioxide. So methane, obviously pretty serious problem in the agricultural industry, considering we've got uh, a large amount of cattle and sheep across Australia and the whole world. So feeding seaweed to cattle, it's a huge industry, um, uh, it is possible at that commercial scale. So I'll be talking at, at large scale about that. I'll be talking about the the benefits that it has carbon sequestration in the ocean itself, um, because you can actually uh, uh, store. Huge amounts of carbon through seaweed in the ocean for thousands of years, which is what we need to do, right? You think about the carbon cycle, it's a natural cycle. So when a tree grows, it absorbs that carbon out of the atmosphere, but then it dies. So it's releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere. That could be done in, you know, uh, uh, anywhere from a 20 to 100 year period in that carbon cycle. Now for long-term climate change reversal, to start reversing the impacts of climate change because of the amount of carbon dioxide that we're putting in the atmosphere, we actually have a massive legacy load there. So we need to st- draw it back down and keep it back down for long periods of time so that it's not increasing the, the, the warming of the atmosphere, the greenhouse effect, as they say. So we need long-term, very, very long-term uh, carbon cycle uh, sequestration solutions. Closing off that loop, we actually need to store it down there and close it off. Um, Coal has been uh, one of those uh, uh, ways that carbon has been stored for long periods of time. But now, as you know, through the use of uh, energy production, we're burning a lot of coal emissions. So that long-term carbon uh, dioxide emissions is now in the atmosphere. We have to work out ways to long-term store it back down can't do it through coal. Coal's formed from millions of years. One of the ways we can do it is through uh, seaweed. Um, you, you, you can uh, uh, plant it and and grow it on the surface of the ocean and then drop it to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and, and when it's dropped to the bottom of the ocean, uh, it, it can store that carbon for large amounts of time. And you can do that at a commercial scale. Now, there's lots of people working in this space, in the in the carbon uh, farming sort of space, um, and a lot of people will say to that, to everything that I'm saying right now, yeah, that sounds great, but what? How can we pay for this? Like, who's going to pay for that? A government's going to pay for that? Is it going to come out of the taxpayer dollar? Well. No, this is what I work in. I work in, in carbon farming industry. It's uh, regardless of government policy or whatever, it's uh, it's going ahead because of that public pressure for climate action. So industry, um, individuals, they're throwing money at this stuff to, to really long term store um, carbon and for real tangible climate action. Um, it's basically, to think of it this way, it's regenerating nature at a profit. So when the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement came into play, uh, where 22 countries signed on to reduce annual global emissions and start to act on climate change a lot more aggressively, uh, Australia's commitment was an emissions reduction fund. It's an initial $2.5 billion fund, for these type of solutions, for seaweed, for um, land rehabilitation and regeneration, projects for mangrove restoration, uh, a lot of different for soil restoration, a lot of different uh, methodologies in there, like I explained before. Uh, these are the scientific methodologies that we use for carbon farming. Mm-hmm. So that that's the legislative framework, right? That allows for this, and then that two and a half billion dollars that basically kickstarted uh, a fund. And because of the public pressure now being put on industries to act on climate, they're all putting money into that fund. So the carbon price it's now sitting at nineteen dollars a carbon ton. It's projected to go up to fifty dollars a carbon ton in the next ten to fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So that carbon block, that got block of gold that we're talking, if you think of it like a block of gold because it is life, uh, carbon is life. So if we value it like gold, then it becomes gold and we can start trading it as a commodity like any other commodity, like we would oil or, or gold, etc. So that carbon price is starting to project. So there's lots more investment being thrown at that, um, which means that there's a lot more carbon offsets Um, And that's what I do. I look for opportunities for land, for ocean um, uh, projects that we can take that carbon offset money and go, okay, we're going to regenerate this land over here. We're going to calculate the amount of carbon that it can generate through those trees or through that seaweed. And we will take a small portion of that as a company, the landholder will, or the farmer to regenerate that land. Um, and it's all regulated and monitored under the scientific processes. Mm. So it's a really bloody interesting industry, which is um, it's been around for about, you know, a decade now going pretty hard, but it's only ramping up full. It's only getting harder and faster. And uh, my uh, work has been cut out for me. But I guess, yeah, they're, they're the main projects that I'm working on at the moment.
1: So look, it's absolutely fascinating, Corey, and I, th- I think that, um, you know, the the amount of press coverage this is now getting and the broader conversations that are happening around carbon capture and, and climate change are obviously going to help you and others in the industry um, actually make some progress with this. What, what I'm interested to understand, though, is why is it that it's, it appears to be moving so slowly and What role does technology play in actually getting some of the, um, seeing some tangible results from these, you know, what what are at the moment seem to be almost laboratory experiments, which are demonstrating the efficacy of this approach? Yeah.
2: I think that it is perceived to be acting slowly. Um, it, It depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about actual action on the ground, then um, it, it's it's hard to see that because the tree grows slowly. We're literally watching grass grow here and we're calculating the amount of grass to grow. So when someone says, oh, it's like watch, watching grass grow, we're doing that. We're watching grass grow. Um, grass and, and trees grow over a 25-year period. That's how long the carbon projects last at the moment, 25 or 100-year projects. Um, there's more benefit for that short-term value, financial benefit. So most people go for the 25-year project. So when you talk in in carbon dioxide pollution um, and the amount of pollution that's sitting up in the atmosphere and the amount of pollution that we need to get back down in the ground, you can't really see that, right? You can't see a tree suck in black pollution into it and store it safely, Uh, not, not in terms of a human lifetime anyway, and it's not visible. If we were emitting visible plumes of black gas into the atmosphere that was ugly and it created a black cloud around the world i am absolutely positive that we would be doing a lot more on this issue very very quickly because no one wants to sit in in a black cloud of of ugliness right but it's clear carbon dioxide pollution is generally clear it's just creating an invisible cloud around uh, the or invisible to the human eye anyway so in terms of why doesn't it seem that we're not doing much? It's because you can't see it. You can't see a tree grow. It happens over a long period of time. There is a lot of uh, work being done in this space. A large, um, huge land restoration projects all across Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia. Um, it's just not well talked about. I'd say I'm one of the only ones actually actively trying to communicate these messages. For example, like when Qantas, Qantas were one of our main clients back in the day. So when you tick that green offset box on Qantas for like $5 for your flight or whatever, it's got a little tree next to it. A lot of people think that that's just a tax going into nowhere. It's a carbon tax and it's just you know a bit of rubbish. That was actually going directly into our projects so that the, into the, the rehabilitation projects. But Qantas don't tell that story, right? I'm sure if Qantas told that story, People would be a lot less skeptical on it. You could actually um, connect, physically connect, and see the project that your money was going into, see the rehabilitation, see the trees. But that's what we do, right? So We're taking a different doing approach that, on this. Though,
1: Corey, why, why do you think companies are not promoting uh, those kinds of initiatives? Because, you know, on the one hand, you hear about a lot of enterprises in, engaged in sort of greenwashing their sustainability. Uh, strategy and telling people that they're doing all of these things when in reality they're not. But then you've got companies like Qantas who are actually doing something when they're asking customers to tick that box and the money is going to a valid cause. But, you know, until you told me that, I, I would not have known that, uh, that they're actually doing that.
2: No, I think people in general are not very good at telling stories anymore. We're, we've become too corporate and, and the human mind uh, has always told stories since the beginning of time. You know, that's the way that we've passed on information. That's the way that the Indigenous passed on information is through storytelling. And through that corporate sort of business world, we've forgotten how to do that. We've just gone, this is a corporate tax. This is a, this is a carbon tax. Um, this is what we're doing for climate change. Uh, pay for it. Like, well, no, the human mind doesn't work like that. You need to tell the story with it. It's like, what farm are you giving that to? What tree? You know, that people want to know these things. They want to feel emotionally connected to it. Like when we we emotionally care about something, we're more
1: likely to contribute to it
2: and to care about it. Um,
1: Absolutely. And especially with something like hmm. this, where, to your point, you know, there isn't a black cloud in the air that we can all look at and say, look, this is the impact it's having on our climate. I mean, there are obviously, there is strong evidence of climate change and the impact of climate change, you know, through through these kind of biblical floods that they've been having in Germany over the last few days and, uh, you know, instances of bushfires in 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 California, et cetera, et cetera. But 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 these these events just be, I think people become a little bit kind of um, blind to them after a while because they're happening all the time. Um, It's easy to become a bit blase about it, that there needs to be some kind of, as you say, I think we've lost the ability to tell these stories in a way that is so compelling, that it engages people mentally in the fact that something needs to be done, and to have them then ask the question, what can I do to help, what is the thing that I could do personally, to actually try and move this thing forward. Now, with your um, experience in the sort of regenerative farming area, have you seen any examples where there has been that engagement and any kind of impact that it's delivered?
2: I think it's slow, but absolutely. Um, It's all psychology in the end, Paul. Uh, People uh, are either reactive or proactive that's the way that the human mind works the the mig in the back of our brain is built as a survival mechanism where we react to stuff we're used to running away from the saber-toothed tiger like right now climate change is a bit different it takes in terms of a human lifetime it takes a long time to change in terms of the whole uh, earth's history it's changing as the fastest that it's ever changed in the last 65 million years so the earth is not keeping up with what we're doing to it but we wake up every morning and see the sun get up and we don't see the gradual changes and over time like you say all these extreme weather events are now becoming a little bit normalized they're like oh another flood another drought. now oh well you know unless it directly affects them They're not going to be reactive. They're not going to be proactive about it. They're going to be reactive. So, most I I did another um, short film documentary on regenerative agriculture in the midst of that, at the peak of that last drought that we had in Mm. Australia, Um, a seven, eight year drought that lasted. And I went around in, in the peak of it in that seventh year and uh, i was interviewing i didn't go around interviewing the farmers that were struggling i went around interviewing the, the people the regenerative farmers the ones who uh, had, had done things differently now you talk to each and every single one of those farmers who still had grass cover they still had income etc Their country was still in well world- running well they were still running cattle and sheep while their neighbors had no grass no water they were trucking in feed to their cattle they're really struggling financially and mentally and everything but these guys down the road Regenerative farmers, with that regenerative mindset, I call it yeah. the, mind, the regenerative mindset, you just think differently, um, it, it, they were more uh, um, at peace with everything, and they were more financially, uh, socially, and environmentally sound on, on their properties. And I asked them the question, "Is like, well, what took, how did you change? And they all basically answered the same thing. It was either um, a, a big event in their lives, like um, like one guy uh, had a had a heart attack and he realised I don't want to keep on doing this it's too stressful um, had a heart attack due to you know his um, uh, the amount of work that he was putting in his property and not getting much back so he's like I've got to do things differently the other one um, was about it was a it was a bushfire that took out everything that he owned and he's like, Well, I got no money to start again. So how do I do this differently? He started to work with no chemicals, no fertilizers, anything like that. He has had to work with nature rather than against it. So these type of things is where people have these massive events. Um it takes to change. What I try and do is try and ask people better questions. It's like we don't want to get to those major events to change we want to start being a little bit more proactive about it now so everything that i do is a little bit more progressive in thinking rather than reactive but body hole, it is harder than what you what you may expect just for the sure fact that is. uh yeah it is it is all about that psychological mindset um it is all about trying to get try to influence rather than manipulate because there is a difference there and rather than tell it's about ask um, rather than, um, than, than tell them what to do, ask them yes. where, where they need to change or where they might be able to change or how they might be able to change so that it becomes their idea so that they can see the benefits hmm. of going more regenerative uh, as well.
1: So, so do you see, is there, is there anything, particularly around the kind of uh, Blue Hope idea that you're, you're developing at the moment, is there one thing there that is going to accelerate how quickly this becomes the norm. How how soon will it be before we see a lot of farmers using, you know, seaweed in in uh, cattle feed, and mm-hmm. there being an attendant benefit coming through? How long is that going to take? It's a really good question paul um i've
2: watched a a couple of leadership i study leadership a fair bit and i've watched a couple of leadership videos on this which is is very relative to how quickly things will change um <laughs> i'm sure that most people would have seen this It's a very common leadership video one crazy guy dancing on a hill right just dancing like a, a wild man you know in front of this whole group of people it just looked like a normal sunday but he had his own music Um, player next to him and he's just dancing he's just going for it and everyone's like looking around you could tell everyone was thinking looking around and going what's this idiot doing then the next person beside him gets up and starts dancing too and then the third person next to him starts dancing as well and then all of a sudden you got 10 people dancing all dancing like idiots just to this music and all of a sudden it started to chat the tide started to change and there were people and by the end hundreds of people running into the pit to start dancing yes. So one person with one person's changed heart and mind can then influence others. And then it becomes a waterfall effect. And then we're, we're impacting and influencing 7, million, 7 billion people around the world. And to, uh, to, to come up and, and reverse climate change, to reverse the impacts of climate change now, we absolutely need 7 billion of us acting. And so the people I say to the people that ask and question this, saying, look, I'm just one person. How can I make a difference well, I bet you that one person on the hill dancing didn't think he could make a difference either. All of a sudden he had the sure. whole hill dancing to his his beat. Yes. Um, and, so, and so one changed heart and mind can then influence the whole entire world if we want it to.
1: And I think that uh, the, the story you told there about your earlier project working with farmers in a drought region, um, the, the seeing the... The comparison between those who'd embraced regenerative farming and the fact that not only did they still have grass cover, they still had were able to feed their own cattle and their own sheep, but the mental aspect of it, that they were, they were a lot calmer, they didn't have the kind of stresses that farmers who weren't in, engaged in regenerative activity were obviously under. Um, can't be underestimated i mean that's got to be a huge factor in this the fact that um, if you're doing something which is caring for the planet and you are seeing that it has benefits not just for yourself and your immediate family and the perhaps the economy around you but also for the well-being of the animals that you're uh that you're caring for and and the community around you that's that that is a big thing you know and i think it's got a lot to If there was a way you could put that into a story around what you're doing on the Blue Hope project, I think that would be so incredibly powerful.
2: Uh, Absolutely, Paul. I I think that that's probably why I do this. In the end, Um, I've I've seen a lot of suicides growing up, and people that were quite close to us on growing up on the farm in the midst of of the droughts and in the peak of those droughts. So I see the impact that it has on people and the direct relationship that we have with nature so everything that regenerative agriculture does everything that you know seaweed farming in the right way does is aligning ourselves with nature and and it's proven time and time again Um, you go for a walk in in nature when you're a bit upset and it has psychological and physiological benefits for us so everything that these methods are doing are aligning ourselves with nature which only improves mental health in the end
1: Absolutely. And uh, well done for getting this project off the ground. I think it's absolutely fascinating to see how these things are developing over time. Um, Corey, we're going to have to to draw it to a close here. What I'd like to say though is thank you again very much indeed for your time um, and for your wisdom and your insights around regenerative agriculture and the Blue Hope Project. We'll put a, a link up, if we may, on our website when this podcast goes out um, so people can actually see some, some of the material that you produced around the project. Um, and if there's anything we can do to get involved, please, please let us know. But thank you, mate. Great to see you again. Very best of luck with the project and do keep in touch.
2: Uh, th- thank you very much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate that, mate. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to check us out on our website, digitalvillage.network, for our past episodes. We'll be back next month, but on the last Wednesday of every month, as we are, with more great stories and guests. See you then.